Um, we're going to jump right in. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to get it out. If you don't have a Bible, download it because they're amazingly free on your phones. Uh, Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to start, Luke 22. So as you're turning there, I wanted to tell you a, a little bit of a story. Back in 2007, while I was on staff with a church in Pittsburgh, I decided to start a seminary program, which if you don't know, seminary is like grad school for pastors. And so I, I was on staff at this church, and I found this program through Bethel Seminary where it was out in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and the majority of the coursework that I was going to do um, could be done online. So I could do the majority of the coursework online, but twice a year for two weeks at a time, this is why we had so many people praying for my wife, I would leave, and I would go to St. Paul, and I would basically live in this hotel room with about four or five other guys because we couldn't afford it on our own. And we would spend two weeks going to class about seven hours a day. So for whatever reason, going to seminary for me that first time, now the online stuff was fine, but going to seminary for the first time felt like going back into the middle school cafeteria for the first time. Like for whatever reason for me, walking into that building the first day, meeting new people. Now I'm an introvert, so it's always a little overwhelming when there's crowds. This is safe because you're really far away. Um, social distance, I've been doing that for years. Like that's, that's kind of who I am. But, but showing up there was so overwhelming. See, I had been a pastor for about six years at that point, but now I was surrounded by a bunch of other men and women in ministry, and it just, it felt odd to me. It was new territory. And as I started, I remember the very first day, I remember one of the things that I wrestled with the most. See, when we got there, the very first day of class, one of the instructors had us go around person by person and share about our calling to ministry. Right? They, they said, tell us what your calling was like. How did you experience the call to ministry? Any, any of you heard those words uttered before that phrase, that church language? And, and I heard these men and women around me, some as old as in their 60s, others in their 20s like me, and they were sharing these incredible stories of God's call to ministry. Like they had these moments of revelations where they just knew God had called them to this journey. And all I could say, this was the answer I literally gave. I said, I've just always seen myself doing this, and I love the church, and I love serving people, and it was that, like, awkward, like, I got measured spiritually in that moment, and, and I didn't know what the deal was. I felt so out of place, and I kind of felt like a fake because I didn't really understand that word calling. I don't know, some of you, maybe, you, you raised your hands, but if you've ever been in a setting like this, but the whole idea of calling can be a little overwhelming, like when people start talking in super religious language, I always call it Christianese. It's like a, I'll, I'll just crack jokes. You're speaking Christianese, right? You, you use like super spiritual words like bought with the blood. Did you ever hear that word growing up or sanctification? That, that was, that's a big word, right? And they're important words, but this idea of calling kind of has that Christianese tone to it. And, and like if I started talking about calling, I bet some of you would automatically think, well, that's a nice story for him. He's a pastor. Of course he has a calling. Like you might be like, oh, I'm okay with that. But what if I ask you this question? This is the question I want to put out before you today. What is your calling? What, what is your calling? What if you plugged your name in there? What is so-and-so's calling? What does that even mean? When we talk about calling, like is that something on a phone, right? We used to have phones tied to the wall, right? Is that, is that the calling we're talking? Is it someone in the street calling out? I, often, I think I often think of uh, God's calling like Field of Dreams. Anybody remember Field of Dreams? where he's walking through the cornfield, and all of a sudden it's, if you build it, he will come. You remember that movie? I watched that clip this morning. My favorite part is when he goes in the house, and his wife says, are you really hearing voices? And he says, just one voice. <laughs> and and she, he says, he said, if you build it, he will come. And, he's, and she goes, if you build what, who will come? And I was like, that's, that's calling sometimes. Like, that's the confusion 
of trying to figure out what God says. Like, what is your calling? I wonder if we were to go around the room in a small group and ask that. We're not going to. What is your calling? There might be crickets, right? Like, it might be kind of hazy and out there or something that we think is maybe only for the super spiritual. Like, some of you will be with me. Some of you, this doesn't sound weird. You grew up in some kind of religious setting where hearing from God was normal. God speaking into your life made sense. But for most of you, like me, I bet the idea of God speaking regularly into your life, just like speaking to a friend, is a bit out there. And I bet for that group, for most of you, the idea of understanding God's calling is still somewhat of a faraway idea that maybe sounds nice. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew what God was saying to us, if we knew what he's calling us to? It sounds nice, but it's not always very realistic. Like, it would be great if you knew deep within you God had some kind of specific calling for you, or if you even knew what his calling was for that one small, like, forget the big life stuff. I don't need a big decision. Just get me out of this situation. Tell me what you're calling me to. But if you're honest, it's somewhat rare that you feel like you hear God speaking, let alone calling. Maybe it's something for, for super spiritual seminary people. <laughs> Not super spiritual at all. But it just doesn't sound like you. And so I want to reset this idea of calling today. We, we started this series last week through the book of Acts. And we're going to go really, really, really super slow through the book of Acts. And, and basically, we're calling this, this series Reset because we want to take a lot of things that maybe we've, we've got framed in our mind about what it means to be a follower of Jesus or about what the church looks like. And I want to reset those things and challenge that for you because Acts is the story of the early church and how it emerged as a kingdom of God revolution right in the middle of the Roman Empire, right in the middle of this religious system of Judaism and right in the middle of an oppressive Roman Empire. The church was the reset of God's kingdom. And last week we looked at the very beginning of the story of the church and how Jesus actually left the earth telling his disciples. Do you remember what he told them to do? He said, wait. Everybody say wait. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Wait for the power that's going to come on you. And when it does, he said to them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But the best they could do right then was wait. Now, today I want to show you two pieces of the disciples' stories. We're going to read exactly what happened next in the book of Acts. And I want to show you how those pieces move them forward in their own personal calling. Because I think right after that Jesus left the earth, they probably had those same questions. I think there was confusion and fear. And much of it, like us, was rooted in their own limitations. So we're going to look at what happens immediately after Jesus leaves them. But before we do that, I want to jump back into the Gospels in Luke chapter 22, where Jesus kind of gives them a picture of what's coming. It's kind of the vision casting moment. So Luke 22, look at verse 29 first. Here's what he says. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. Now underline, circle, write down, whatever you need to do, that word confer. That's a little bit of a confusing word we're going to unpack. But he says, I want to confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is before Jesus went to the cross. This is kind of the last supper moments. He's saying, I'm going to give you this kingdom. I'm going to put you in this place. And the disciples had the advantage. When we talk about calling, we don't have this advantage all the time, but Jesus was actually face-to-face with his disciples, and he tells them, he says, you're going to play a role in the kingdom of God. You will be leaders. You are called to this. I am conferring something on you. Now, I love that word because that word literally means that I'm bestowing a gift. I'm giving you this place in the kingdom of God. Then look at verse 31 right after this. 
Here's what Jesus turns and says to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Man, calling doesn't get any clearer than that. Right, like Jesus spells out the calling. Specifically for Simon Peter, he, he spells it out. He's putting on these disciples a kingdom. They have roles to play. They have places at the table. And he tells Simon, he says, I want you to be a major player. But he says, you're going to be tempted. You're going to fail. And watch what Simon does. He refuses to believe it. But, 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 but Peter replied, verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now, here's my question when I read that. Have you ever thought about how much time you and I spend guarding our reputation rather than redeeming our failures? You ever thought about how often we spend defending ourselves, putting false perceptions out there, putting image, like there's a whole series of apps on your phone that you get to filter the bad stuff out of your pictures, right? That's why they exist. And we thank God for that, don't we, right? Like we, that's what we do, but we spend so much time. <clears throat> I'm getting too preachy here. The message that Jesus gives to Peter is hopeful, right? It's encouraging. It's reassuring. He says, Peter, Satan wants you, but I'm praying for you. And when you turn back, because you will fail, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. It's so powerful, so compassionate that his rabbi sees in him, you've got a place, a role to play, but you're going to fail. It's okay, though, because you're going to come back and you're going to strengthen the brothers because I want you to lead. Step up, reassure the ones around you, do this thing. But Peter misses all that and simply defends himself. Even before he fails, in the moment Jesus tells him what he's called to, Peter defends himself against the failure. He denies his failure and defends his reputation. Listen, don't miss this. See, this is the first thing you got to get today as we reset this idea of calling. Your calling will often come in spite of and through your failures. Don't miss that. Your calling, what God wants to do in your life, will not be broken by your failures. It will come through your failures. Do you know the reason, or at least part of the reason why so many of us think that only pastors in the super spiritual have a calling? Because we've never embraced our failures. We've never lived into that because you've never acknowledged that. You've never let your failures bring you to your knees like Paul did and say, listen, I am the chief of sinners. That's who I am. Jesus tells the truth to Peter. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And guess what happens? You can read on in this chapter later on. Here's what, here's what happens. Peter denies him three times, kind of like Jesus knew what he was talking about, right? That's exactly what happens. Peter follows Jesus as he's led to the cross at a distance. And we're told that standing around a fire, this little girl looks up at him and says, you were with Jesus, but Peter denies it. And then he denies it two more times. And here's where Luke ends this story, verse 61. The Lord turned after the third time Peter denied him. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Then look at verse 62, because I think this is where most of us spiritually spend our lives. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter's broken. He's broken by his failure. Can you imagine this moment? I've always read this and thought, what an incredibly heartbreaking moment. Jesus tells Peter and the disciples, I'm going to confer on you a kingdom, and they don't even make it out of the chapter without failing miserably. It's terrible, and it's true, and it's common. And here's the thing. I'm convinced that those who are living into the kingdom of God, the calling of God on our lives, the only difference between those who are living the calling and the rest of us who miss it, those of you who come to church but don't do anything with it, the only difference is the difference makers have embraced their failures. 
the rest of you, you're living under the authority of the kingdom of failure in your life. And you're not called to that. Your calling is going to come in spite of your failures. It's going to come through your failures. If we were to nail this down, what failure is it that holds you up? Maybe it's sexual failure. Maybe it's the marriage failure that you just feel like, I can't, I can't be a spiritual leader. There's no way because everything that I had fell apart. Or relational failure or financial failure, whatever it is, Peter understood it. Peter was told you're going to fail. He insisted he wasn't. He went and did it anyway. But then we get to Acts. And we get to a place where the disciples are commissioned like we talked about last week. Jesus is with them and he just says, wait, just wait and let God's spirit come with power. And, and they're saying, we want the kingdom that you've promised. And he says, no, just wait. And then they would be witnesses. So Jesus ascends. He lives, leaves them in this in-between space that we talked about last week where they know there's a kingdom coming, but they're not sure how to get there. And Jesus just simply says, you're in the in-between. Just wait. Look at Acts chapter 1. Verse 12, we'll put this on the screen as well. Here's immediately what happens after Jesus ascends to heaven. Verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, if you remember, last week, I told you, like I said, you'd have to embrace the in-between. You have to embrace the waiting. We're going to reset what it means to follow Christ. The mission of God. It means we wait. We're comfortable with that. In this passage, the apostles show us how to wait. How many of you are like me? You would say, waiting just stinks. It's not fun. I don't know how to do it. I'm not good at it. I wish you would hurry up so I could get to lunch, right? Like that's, come on, don't be shy. Raise your hand. That is, that is most of us. That's the difficulty of waiting. This passage, and you don't get many practical step-by-step -step sermons from me. This passage has a little bit of practicality. Here's how you wait in the kingdom of God. Ready? You need to take notes because I'm going to give you the answers right now. Guys are not excited. Okay, how to wait. Here's the first thing the passage tells us. They had obedient patience. Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem and wait. And you know what the people did? They listened to him. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? That they would actually do the things Jesus tells them to do. They go back to Jerusalem. They go up to the upstairs room, and they sit down. They sit down. Some of you, that's the hardest part of life in God's kingdom is when he says, just sit down, be quiet, and wait. They sit down. Many of us don't live into the calling God has for us because we're so fixated on instant gratification. This is why people fail morally, sexually, because they were not willing to pursue the good that comes with living our relational, physical side of our lives in the way that God says. This is why our financial system, so many of us are so in crushing, soul-crushing financial debt because we're pursuing instant gratification. This is why vocationally we miss out because we live for our own satisfaction versus the patience that God tells us to have when we are obedient to him. Psalm 27, verse 14, the writer says this, wait for the Lord. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. Now, don't say it through gritted teeth. Say it like you mean it, right? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And in case you didn't get it, wait for the Lord. Just wait for the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Isn't that a powerful phrase, that God longs to be gracious to us? I love that. It makes me feel good. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord's a God of justice. I love all that. Then it says, blessed are all who wait for him. No, I don't like that. Could you hurry up with your graciousness? Could you bring it a little quicker? See, here's the thing. We, we talk often about how hard it is to wait. But I want you to notice something. I, I didn't just say here that patience is how you wait. I, I said obedient patience. 
See, there's, there's freedom in the midst of waiting when we are obedient. This is why for so many, and I'm, I'm talking a lot about relationships today, and singleness is a great issue, right? Be, a, a great way of conversing about this. Because when we are obedient to what God says relationally, even as we wait, we find freedom in that. That's what Paul says, right? The, the, vocationally, when we find ourselves in a place where we're going, God, will you just do something about my job? God, what, what are you calling me? What is this? What, what is next for me? When we are obedient to the things God says about being in that place of waiting, when we're obedient with the standards, the righteousness that he's called us to, we find freedom in the waiting. You know what the disciples didn't? They, they, here, they didn't have the focus of figuring out their calling as a path to their happiness. Well, Jesus told us to wait, but we'd really like to be happy, so could we move this along? They were focused on the kingdom of God and its mission. They weren't focused on their desires. So, so listen to this, right? Peter was married. Other disciples were single. They weren't waiting to see how God would meet their desires, thinking that was their calling. Your calling is not your own desires. Your calling is the mission and the kingdom of God. Too often today we're talking about how hard waiting is, but what we really mean is like the kid on Christmas Eve. It's hard to wait for the things we want. And I would love to reset your calling and your idea of calling so that it's not centered on your own contentment, but rather on God's call to his kingdom. That's what calling looks like. Will you wait obediently until he unveils what's next? Let me say it this way. Your marriage, praise God that you're married. That's not your calling. Your singleness, praise God that you're single because you are free to live the kingdom. But that's not your calling. They are mechanisms to enhance your calling. God's calling is his kingdom rising up in your life. Live obediently in those things. Have I hammered this point hard enough? Are you ready to move on? Okay, here we go. Obedient patience. Here's the second way we wait. Consistent community. Consistent community. It says they all join together constantly. They all join together constantly. There is power in the midst of waiting within the community. Don't go it alone. Don't be Lone Ranger Jesus follower. You know why? Because Jesus never sent his disciples out alone. He never said, hey, go preach the gospel all by yourself and good luck not screwing it up. No, he sent them two by two. He sent them out. He said, keep being in the community. Some of us, some of you are so isolated, and you need to open up to the people around you, even in the middle of pandemic. So what do we do with our fear? What do we do when, when we're living in a season where it is scary, it is anxiety-inducing? We live with wisdom, but we also live with courage because First John says perfect love of Jesus casts out fear. And we live within the community, whether that's here in this room, online, virtually, calling someone, texting someone, saying, I am with you. Don't go this alone. I need you with me. So obedient patience, consistent community. Here's the third piece that we, that we practice. This is how we wait. Continual prayer and worship. Continual prayer and worship. It says they joined together, but guess what? They didn't just join together constantly for gossip. They didn't just join together constantly because Taco Tuesdays. You got to do that, right? They join together constantly, it says, in prayer, not just for wine nights. Mm, we're preaching. They joined together in prayer to grow. They went after Jesus. This is why we're starting house churches, because we want to share life, but we don't just want to do social gatherings. We want to be the church in each other's lives. We want to be in prayer 
together. Now look at the next verse, verse 15. It says, in those days, now watch this, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Now here's the next piece of this waiting. Not just prayer, not just worship, not just community, not just obedient patience, but also studying the word examination of the word, being in scripture repeatedly, repeatedly immersing themselves in the word of God, saying, I want to hear God speak, and because I want to hear God speak, I'm going to open God's word. You know how many people come to me? I just don't know what God wants for me. When's the last time you read the Bible? Oh, I don't do that. It's his word, right? It's his word. It's what he wants to say to us. It's so important, so critical. Now, here's the other piece of our calling today. So that's how you wait. We'll come back to that in a little bit. When we learn to wait, the second part of resetting our calling, when we learn to wait, when we do the work of obedient patience and community and prayer and worship, when we immerse ourselves in God's word, sooner or later, the calling of your life will make sense. And it, when it makes sense, you'll know your moment. Any Hamilton fans? I know my family is. You guys just were good. Hamilton fans. So what's, what's the phrase that gets repeated by Alexander Hamilton throughout the show, right? I'm not throwing away what? I'm not throwing away my shot, Right? That's the echo through the whole thing. So for Peter, watch this. Don't, don't miss the power of this passage. For Peter, the apostle who just like Judas had the most public failure imaginable. For Peter, he finds himself, just picture this. You're sitting with Jesus with all your friends, and Jesus says, you, you're going to fail me. Not just once, three times. No, I'm not. I'm all good. And then you go out, and guess what? You fail three times. He has the most public failure imaginable. And yet in this moment, He's the very first one to get up and preach. Ah, I love this. I love this. God wants him to give the message, and he does. He doesn't throw away his what? He doesn't throw away his shot. And that tells us this other thing about calling. See, don't miss this. Calling puts us in the places to do the things that Jesus did. There's so much power, and, and, and I, I, this is tangent, but I want to show you this. In Luke 24, you don't have to turn there, but here's what Jesus says in verse 44. He says to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. And just underline this part. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about the law. So Jesus is taking Old Testament scripture, and he, under the authority of God as Messiah, Rabbi, Savior, is interpreting it for his disciples. Everything must be fulfilled. And in this moment in Acts, we see Peter, who failed Jesus, standing up and saying, you know that it was necessary. Peter, the fallen, failed fraud, has become the interpreter of Scripture. If you don't think you're capable of leading in God's kingdom in the church community, practicing spiritual leadership, read Peter's story. Because he blew it, and he still gets up and carries the authority. Remember Jesus' command to Peter before his failure? When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. And Peter lives that calling by doing exactly what Jesus did. He, he interprets the scripture. You'll see in the coming weeks, the disciples do the things that Jesus did. They healed people. They taught. They confronted broken religious and political systems and empires. And it took courage from them. Do you think Peter wasn't scared? You think Peter was not standing up in front of these folks going, these are the guys that saw me blow it three times. These are the guys that, like, they know my reputation. But he gets up and he does it anyway. Your clear calling 
gives you the courage to do what Jesus did. Go on here, and and I want to get you through this. Verse 17, he continues to describe Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, sold Jesus to the cross, and then killed himself. Here's what it says in verse 17. He was one of our number, and he shared in our ministry. Now, just just think for a minute. Everybody say ministry, because I know it's afternoon and you're getting sleepy. Ministry, right? The word ministry there is diakonia. It's, it's the word we get for deacons. But what the word really means there is not just ministry. It means service. And it literally means service that would be done by slaves, by women in this culture, by the lowest of the low. See, your calling, this is another thing about calling, your calling will always be rooted in having a servant heart. If you're serving because you're looking for position, then you're missing out on the kingdom of God because service is all about ministry and ministry is all about service. It's about lowering yourself. As Jesus said, becoming great in the kingdom is by becoming less. Your calling is rooted in how you can empty yourself, become the, the, the deacons of the church. You know what the deacons of the church are? They're the greatest servants. They're the ones who show up and set up and pull down chairs. And remember when we were at the VFW bingo hall, they were lifting those tables over and over and over again. All that stuff that's not glamorous, that's what ministry looks like. And here's where Peter wraps this up. He says, therefore, because we lost Judas, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. This is kind of the last point I want to make to you. They they wanted someone who had been with them the whole time. Now, why was that? Because as a condition for their ministry, for their calling, to be the witness Jesus commanded them to be, it had to be someone who had actually been with Jesus. You can't witness to something you haven't encountered that's a, that, that'll preach, by the way. You can't witness to something that you haven't I- encountered. But, but you have to get this. You want to you know why some of you aren't producing fruit in God's kingdom? You know what I mean by fruit, right? Like, you're not seeing your friends who don't know Christ come to Jesus. You're not doing the work of making disciples. Let's be honest. We don't see these things happen because we haven't really been with Jesus. We're living a faith based on someone else's faith. Well, mom and dad told me about this, and so church is the right thing to do, and that's what I do, and I'm, I'm there, and I've got, I've got this intellectual Christianity without personal encounter Christianity. People that are Christians on Facebook when there's an argument to be had. Amen? Can we say amen together? Can we say amen? People defending on social media, calling out everyone they think disagrees with them, but missing what it means to produce fruit in the kingdom of God because they haven't truly encountered Jesus. Can I ask you hard questions? When was the last time you led someone to Christ? When was the last time? That's too much. I'm scared of that. Okay. When was the last time you went and got trained in how to share your faith with someone who doesn't know Christ? When was the last time you prayed for someone that you know, that you love, that you want to see come to Christ? When was the last time you sat down with someone and discipled them closer to Christ? And here's what happens. I know what happens in our culture. So many of you go, well, that's, that's the pastor's job. That's the ministry. That's what the church does. If I get people to church, then that's good. So I invite, hear people all the time, I'm inviting them to church. Hope they come, hope they come, hope they come. That's great. But you are actually told by Jesus way more often to go and make disciples, to go and reach the lost, than you're told ever to go and bring people to church. He never said that. He didn't say it. And so we have to be honest that there's disobedience in our lives. Parker Palmer says, calling is, is the way you define calling. This is something I can't not do. 
I know that's a double negative, right? But this is what calling is. It's something I can't not do. So here's where this story ends. They nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice. That's almost my name, but it's not. And Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. And don't miss this, right? They didn't go to seminary. Amen? They didn't have to do six years of Hebrew and Greek. Amen? They prayed, they rolled the dice, and they said, Matthias, you're up. Guess what? That's calling. That's the kingdom of God calling. This is like the scene in the movie before the team takes the field for the big game or before the army jumps into the war. I I like this. Before the Avengers go take out the big bad guy. This is the catalytic moment. Everything. Next week you're going to see this. Everything. I'm preaching this, but I can't wait to preach next week. We're going to have so much fun. Especially, this is the catalytic moment when you see what happens in the next chapter. See, out of their prayer, they commission someone else to apostolic ministry. Another fancy Christianese word. Apostolic ministry literally means you're sent. You're sent. That's all it means. You're sent where? Yep, that's it. Where are you going? I'm going home. That's where you're sent. Where are you going tomorrow? I'm going to work. Yep, that's where you're sent. You're an apostle. That's all that means. You are sent to apostolic ministry. They're not sent to pastoral ministry. That's not what they're sent to. They're sent into the world. It's not about seminary, not about programs in the church. It's about being sent. And guess what? You and I are a part of this. So I want to end with the same question I started with, that awkward Christianese question. What is your calling? What is your calling? See, for many of us, and, and students, college age, high school, middle school, you guys, I think, wrestle with this maybe more than, than others. But when we talk about calling, we think of these kind of individual balloons. We've got to pick the right balloon. So when it comes to marriage, there's like all these balloons, and I've got to find out what, what, what balloon God has hidden my spouse in. When it comes to college, I've got to figure out what college that I'm supposed to go to because I'm called by God. And if I pick the wrong balloon, it's going to pop. And it's like that old game. It's going to have shaving cream in it and not the prize. Does this make sense? Or a job. I've got to pick the right job. And, and, and even outside of students, many of you know this. You're trying to figure out what balloon should you pick. The problem is that puts us at the center of God's calling. That puts us in the place where we go, oh, my calling's about my desires, my happiness. When in reality, Jesus says, what are you called to? You're called to love God, love others. What are you called to? You're called to make disciples. Yeah, but how do I do that? Well, what do you love? I love engineering. Good. Go be the most amazing engineer you can be and love everybody that comes in your path. That's what you're called to. The great theologian said, love God and do as you will. There's so much freedom in calling when we begin to understand what it means to be obedient. So let me close with these questions. Are you willing to do the work of waiting? Are you willing to do the work of waiting? How do we wait? Obedient patience, consistent community, constant prayer and worship, immersing yourself in God's word. You don't know what God's calling you to? Do those things every single day. I'm serious. This is as practical as I get. You don't know what God's calling you to right now? You've got big decisions to make. You're trying to pray through who it is, what it is, where it is, when it is. What does God have for me? Wait patiently with obedience. Reach out to community every day. Hey, I need you to pray for me. I need you to lift me up. Can we get coffee? I want to process what I'm reading, what I'm studying, what I'm thinking. 
be in that place. Pray, worship, make those regular parts of your life, and then immerse yourself in God's Word. And you do that until you know the answers. That's the practice. It's as simple as it gets. Are you willing to do the work of waiting? And then here's the second question. This is the harder one. Are you courageous enough to live the call? Are we, are, do you really want to hear from God? That's sometimes I'm like, do you really want to, do you really want to know what God has for you? You really want to know? Because I bet there's been times in your life where you literally didn't want to hear what God said. You got in a car, you turned up the music loud, you went to some party, and the last thing on your mind was, God, speak to me right now. That was the last thing in your head because you didn't want to know. Are we courageous enough to live the call that God has for us?